The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Barry Ritholtz. He's the Chief Investment Officer at Ritholtz Wealth Management in New York. Welcome to the show, Barry. Thanks for having me. Let's just start with a little bit of your background. Probably a lot of people have heard about you, but for the, the few people on earth who have not heard about you, give a brief uh, background of, of what you've been doing and, and how you created this new firm now. Sure. Um, so we run an asset management firm. Uh, we launched this uh, last month. Uh, we really had a practice within another firm, and, and as you can imagine, we were heading in one direction, they were going in a different direction, and this this new firm really allows us to focus on what we do best without any potential um, issues clouding the picture. Uh, uh, just as a, a particular example, we're not the biggest fans of, of venture capital and, and hedge funds, it's not that there aren't really good VCs or really good hedge funds. It's that, by and large, the average investor either doesn't have access to the really good ones or are in hedge funds that either overcharge or underperform or both. So it was just a little awkward. I'm running around the country telling people why, unless you're in Renaissance Technologies or one of the top 1% of funds, you shouldn't be in it when another division in the old office was out pitching hedge funds. So this makes it clean and clear and no even appearance of conflicts. You know, we eat our own dog food. Everything we do is, is based on stuff that we really believe in, and we're never going to find ourselves in a situation where one branch of Ritholtz Wealth Management is saying up and the other branch is saying down. Um, it, it's nice to have a very consistent approach to the universe. And what is the style that you're using? Uh, you, you do asset allocation, individual stocks, ETFs, what kind of uh, uh, instruments do you use? So the, the, it's a dual approach. The, we believe, so let me step up back and give you a little philosophical okay. spin, and then we'll, we'll drill down a little bit. So the two things that, that we run into more than anything else, first, most people lack the tools, the skills, the discipline to really do what they're supposed to do in terms of long-term investing, primarily saving for their retirement. And the reason for this isn't a surprise. People don't put the time and energy into it. Um, They lack the emotional discipline, which is why at just about every top, the public is clamoring to get in. And just about every bottom, the, the public is, is selling in a panic. So we wanted to come up with a solution that was uh, a response to that and it resolves and avoids that issue. So the core of what we do is a broad asset allocation model depending on clients' risk tolerance, um, either an 80-20 or a 70-30 or a 60-40 proportion between risk assets, typically equities, 
um, and non-risk assets, assets typically treasuries, corporates, and munis. Um, that those proportions can change over a variety of, of factors, but but that's the core. That's the basic that we think everybody should be in, and that it should be. Um, uh, anywhere between 65 and 75 percent of of their long term investments. So Around once you've the, got that asset allocation, then within the stocks and bonds, you're picking individual stocks and bonds, no, or do you have within, money managers that use? Within that broad allocation, we um, it, it, it's pretty much I don't want to say exclusively ETF, but it's almost all ETF. It's as lowest cost as possible. There are there are one or two funds that either do stuff that you can't get with an ETF. Or in the case of certain Vanguard funds, it just turns out the, the mutual fund is cheaper than the comparison, comparable um, ETF, which is sort of an unusual and rare circumstance, but there are a handful of, of funds that operate that way. So in that core, it's pretty broad, it's pretty index-driven. Around the perimeter, some people call this a core and satellite. I'm not a big fan of that phrase. Uh, but around the perimeter, depending on what the client specifically needs, some people are looking for income, some people are looking for growth, they, uh, different people have different risk tolerances. We have a variety of different buckets. Um, uh, one, we work with a, a, a manager that runs a tactical fund. Another is a concentrated equity fund. We're in the midst of developing that we run ourselves that's sub-advised with, with a third party. We're in the midst of developing a sector rotation fund, and these are supposed to be small buckets that maybe are 10 or 15% of a portfolio that either, as well as a muni bond portfolio, that either move it in the direction of, hey, I'm conservative, I'm already wealthy, I just want some income to live off, or this money isn't for me or even my kids, it's for my grandkids, I have a 30, 40, 50 year um, uh, window, so I could be a little more aggressive because I know I don't have to tap into this anytime soon. And, you know, you don't want to run a thousand different portfolios, but the the joke around the office is it's kind of like Mexican food. You could take nine separate ingredients and make 10,000 dishes out of it. Okay. It's the same basic concept with running a core and a, and a satellite. By the way, within some of the satellites, we do own specific stocks. We own Berkshire, we own Chevron, we own Merck, we've, we still own Visa for some clients that we bought a, a while ago. So there are a handful of specific companies that will have kind of as a proxy for an entire sector. Um, Berkshire and Visa are both examples of, gee, we, we feel like we need exposure to finance, but we don't like the too-big-to-fail banks, and we don't like all the stuff that's been going on with, with Citi and J.P. Morgan and Bank America. So that was a way to make sure we had exposure um, to the financial sector without having exposure to problems like the London Whale, although it's hard to see how much it's actually damaged J.P. Morgan's right. stock price. <laughs> so, uh, what is the, your minimum investment and what kind of asset management fees do you charge? So uh, we don't really have a formal minimum. We, we really spend more time trying to make sure that there's a good fit between what we do and what the client does. Uh, every now and then, some you know, not to get all miracle on 34th Street, but every now and then someone will contact us. This just happened not too long ago. Hey, I'm 68. My broker chunk really damaged my account, and I have $800,000, and I'm retiring in two years, and I just want a conservative, balanced portfolio. Uh, hey, you could pay us. You know, the, our fees average around 1%. 
the the bigger the account, the lower the fee is, and if they're family members or what have you, we'll group them in order to reach the closest break point. But we said to somebody, you don't need to pay us one and a quarter percent to do what you're, you need. You should just get the Vanguard Windsor Fund, which is essentially a 65-35 stock bond portfolio that rebalances every quarter. But, by the way, the nice factor about having you know, a dozen or so different assets within a broad allocation is we get to rebalance on a regular basis. Anything that's run up too far from the original weighting, you trim a little bit back to its actual weighting. And the same thing with anything that's fallen. You, you buy a little bit. And, and all the academic studies have shown that this adds anywhere from 75 to 125 basis points of essentially free returns. It's, it's the closest thing... Portfolio rebalancing is the closest thing to a free lunch on Wall Street. There's no additional risk, and you actually squeeze a little um, extra returns. Now, I will tell you that when we were rebalancing and adding to Europe and emerging markets a year ago at this time, everybody thinks you're insane. But since then, they've done, you know, uh, look at they've done really well. But it's one of those things that you have to have the ability to step out of the moment and look at circumstances within a multi-year perspective and uh, humans have a real difficult time doing that yeah what what kind of a track record have you gotten not specific numbers but in general over a long period of time doing these kind of things so the goal is to actually generate so our benchmark isn't the s&p 500 but it's a there are all sorts of benchmarks that you can use uh, by the way, some people cheat by taking a, a, an easy benchmark we use the 70 30 benchmark that I think Trying to remember the name of the the people behind it. These things keep changing because uh, everything gets sold from one company to another. Remember the one of the Case Shiller benchmarks got bought by S and P. Something from Goldman got bought by someone else. But I'm trying to remember if it was Morgan Stanley or whoever's whoever is behind that seventy thirty benchmark. The goal is to come pretty close to market performance, but with much less volatility, much less drawdowns. And the beauty of that is it avoids the sort of panic reaction that you tend to see at the worst moments. I can't count how many people we either spoke to anecdotally or heard stories of or reviewed their portfolios who in February and March '09 were selling in a panic. And not just with the benefit of hindsight, but what we were saying at the time was, hey, any time a market is cut in half, uh, that's when, at the very least, you want to put a put a toe in the water, if not start getting ready to back up the truck. But it's really difficult to do that if you don't have some structure and some format, and and the data behind it that says, "Hey, this really works." And it turns out that buying equities or bonds or any asset class, for that matter, after they've collapsed, and you can do it on a quarterly basis. You can do it. Um, there's actually software now that we use that optimize the process. It used to be somewhat of a, a throwing darts in the dark exercise to figure out when the ideal time to rebalance is. Um, we use a software program called iRebal that basically goes through a portfolio, determines the optimum number of rebalancing to do each year based on the size of the account, the amount of holdings there are, um, and it can even be configured to maximize tax loss harvesting so that you're paying the least amount of, of taxes in a non-qualified account. So the technology to do 
stuff that's a little more interesting and a little more sophisticated, yet at its heart and soul is just selling a little bit of what's expensive, buying a little bit of what's cheap. Over time, that works out really, really well. Uh, it's difficult for people psychologically to do that, even though financially it makes sense because they're, uh, they're tired or they're scared of buying things that have gone down and like to put more things that have gone up is what you're saying. Yeah, you know, equities are, are one of the few things that people hate when they're on sale and yeah. love when the prices are high. And, you know, there's a certain reason for that. There's not only the hurting effect and the tendency to want to do what everybody else is doing, but we do know that trends have a tendency to persist there's a certain amount of um, truth to the statement that the trend is your friend. The problem is always that bend at the end. And unless people really have a mechanical approach that, and the discipline to follow, follow through with it, you know, from our perspective, our job is to do that. So there is no emotional, oh, gee, should we rebalance this quarter? Hey, we make an uh, agreement with the clients that this is what we're going to do. We're fiduciaries. It's our obligation to do this. So it's never an issue of, gee, maybe we should have been buying back in the first quarter of '09. That's what the model says. That's what we do. We do it. It's easier for somebody like us to do that than for the, you know, the average person to say, what should I be doing? They're, they're inundated. And, and this is where the behavioral work that I do comes, comes to play. People are inundated with so much information and so much bad information that you can't help but react emotionally. And, and as we've learned over the years, emotional reactions in the stock market invariably lead to bad decisions. Indeed. Okay, we're going to take a break. This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Barry Ritholtz, Chief Investment Officer at Ritholtz Wealth Management based in New York. Uh, Barry, what is the website where people can find out more about the firm? It's just ritholtzwealth.com, or they can send us uh, an email at info at com. Very good. We'll be back after this. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Business owners, do you run your business or does your business run you? Put yourself on the road to success by tuning in to Success Unchained with hosts Anthony and Julie McGloin. At last, discover how to overcome your biggest challenges, take control of your business, and achieve the results you've always dreamed of. Find out how with our resident master business coach and world-class guest experts. Transform the nine key areas of your business and unchain your true potential. Tune in Mondays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Think of the world. 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. If you want to know about investing in emerging and frontier markets, 
or if you have experience in this field but still need to know more, tune in to Emerging and Frontier Markets Investing with Gavin Graham. Gavin explores news, current trends, and insights about both categories of investing. His guest experts, along with his own knowledge, will help you stay above the line when it comes to growth potential, whether in funds or equities. He will look at what to invest in and avoid. Tune in to Emerging and Frontier Markets Investing with Gavin Graham every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Barry Ritholtz. He's the Chief Investment Officer at Ritholtz Wealth Management uh, based in New York. Welcome back to the show, Barry. Thanks for having me. So you were saying that uh, what you want to do is buy things when they're cheap and out of favor and sell some things when they're expensive. What today is expensive and what's cheap? So when we look around the world, we, you know, the U.S. isn't horrifically expensive, but we're definitely on the uh, uh, more expensive than fair value. You know, not that we ever got really cheap following the collapse. That's the irony of, of the Fed intervention and, and a number of other factors. The uh, U.S. got a little cheap in '09, but by the time we got to 2010, we were pretty close to fair value, certainly by 2011. Um, so the U.S. is no longer cheap. It's not that we're like 1999 expensive. We're just somewhat elevated relative to historic averages. The thing that, that people tend to forget, things that are expensive can stay expensive or become a lot more expensive for a long time. And as anybody who said, hey, stocks look cheap in the middle of 2008 have learned, cheap stocks can get a whole lot cheaper. So just merely looking at... Um, just merely looking at, at the raw price that way sometimes is a little misleading. Now, well, What is the key metric that you are using to analyze whether they're cheap or expensive? Is it price-earnings so, ratios or what are the key well, we metrics? we look at a few things. You know, the P.E. ratio, thanks to the uh, silliness of the accounting industry, has pretty much become, I don't want to say worthless, but worth very little because there's so much shenanigans that companies can and do play with their earnings statements, um, it's not, no longer the, the best measure. So what we like to look at uh, are dividend yields. You could fake earnings, but you can't fake a dividend check. That has to go out, and when it goes out, it has to clear, and that's a really significant data point. And then the other thing um, we like to look at is growth in earnings relative to growth in, in revenues. And again, you could you can kind of finagle um, growth in earnings, but you can't finagle revenues. The revenues are how much money is the company bringing in. Although to be although to be fully um, uh, comprehensive, sometimes we see companies like software companies that are writing multi-year contracts um, finagling their revenues as well. So 
the the I blame the accountants. You know, I know everyone wants to kill the lawyers, but the accountants have allowed. Um, they the accountants have failed their duty to investors. Uh, earnings reports are not nearly the statement of clarity and transparency that they should be. And the accounting industry, and especially the big five, who are now down to, I think, three, um, ha- have not only tolerated but encouraged. It's very challenging to be a fundamental investor looking at balance sheets because um, uh, the best way to describe them is too many of them are, are works of fiction. So, okay, so U.S. is slightly elevated, not wildly expensive, but a little bit more expensive uh, than right. it had been before. Uh, what in the stock market, before we get to the bond market, what in the stock market around the world is considered cheap? Well, you look at Europe, uh, which everybody six months ago hated. So not only had we been adding to Europe on our regular rebalancing, but about six months ago we, we raised our total allocation to Europe because they had become so cheap and you know, the, the same thought process that went into looking at U.S. equities in, at the end of Q1 in 2009, I don't want to say Europe got that cheap, but there are investors that were looking at Europe as if the continent was never, ever going to come back, that the economy would never, ever recover, and that they were entering a Japan-like situation of a 20-year recession. And we just couldn't find any evidence that that was true. Um, so we, we raised our allocation to Europe. And then if you look at emerging markets, which have also gotten pretty destroyed, um, they got really cheap. And uh, one of the ways we, we like to get exposure to emerging markets is by looking at emerging market companies that are mature, that are stable. And the way we find that is companies that have a good dividend yield in emerging markets. Now, it's one thing when you say that in the U.S. or, or Europe. Uh, I mean, even tech companies in the U.S. issue a dividend. But when you look in the emerging markets, it tends to be much bigger and more stable companies like utilities, energy companies, um, healthcare companies, banks. And remember when we're talking uh, emerging markets like Brazil and Vietnam or, or Korea, these aren't the two big-to-fail banks that have been so problematic in the U.S. and Europe. These are big, solid banks that, that generate regular money without taking... Um, what would be a name or two, Barry, of some of those emerging market uh, stable companies you're just talking about? Uh, so let me, let me pull up my list. The, the easiest way people can do this is through an ETF. So instead of... I'm going to give you a handful of names, but have a look at, um, as an example, DVYE is the iShares Emerging Markets... Dividend uh, ETF. Uh, we like it because it's a fairly low um, cost, has a fairly decent yield, and has a nice assortment of individual companies without being overweighted to any one particular um, part of the world or any one particular um, sector. And it, you know, they've done a really nice job. It, it's not one of these things that really rockets up on a regular basis but you'll you'll see it you know it's just a ready steady grower um, some of the names that are in this are, are, are names like Electro Palo which is a uh, Brazilian um, electric company actually that's one of the bigger holdings in it um, there's a Ford subsidy that I believe is in Portugal um, there's a 
Telefonica in Czechoslovakia, um, the sort of names that you and I would never find on our own unless we were visiting in those nations or had some ability to, to sift through that. But they are good, steady growers. The so, so these are what you're saying. They're good quality companies, and they're relatively cheap compared to the U.S. right now. Uh, much cheaper than the U.S. and uh, a decent um, a decent dividend yield. The, the, the nice thing about about these dividends, uh, you, you're basically seeing um, almost 4%. It's 3.9%. There's no currency risk because you're essentially holding it in U.S. dollars. In theory, there's some currency circumstance that the uh, iShares has to deal with, but uh, as an investor, it's something you really don't have to worry, worry about. Uh, typically, these are medium-sized companies. They're not giant companies. Um, and, and all told, I... I doing this from memory, but I want to say it's like a 0.45 uh, expense ratio, something like that. Uh-huh. So, right, so let, let's go to the, the bond side now. So we have a general sense of what's expensive, what's cheap. Uh, we've had a, basically a 30-year bull market in bonds here. Are bonds expensive or are there some cheap uh, bonds out there? So it depends on the bonds you're looking at. Uh, uh, to start off with, I'm not a big fan of tips, especially these days when there really aren't signs of inflation. It's It's so funny how Every general fights the last battle. If you remember, from 2001 to 2007, the U.S. dollar lost 41% of its value. That's a tremendous haircut. Over that same period, uh, oil went from $19 to $150. Foodstuffs, go down the list, commodities, precious metals, they've all gone screaming. Uh, Now, over the past, let's call it three years, the dollar has been pretty stable, Oil has been range-bound. Gold has lost almost a third of its value. Uh, you look at where people are saying there's inflation, uh, yeah, healthcare continues to go up, but not as fast as it was. Um, impl- uh, college is going up, but again, that's been a trend for 25, 30 years. The things that were driving prices higher um, uh, aren't really driving prices higher anymore. The, the other exception that's probably out there, depending on where you are in the United States, the rental market for housing has, has definitely gotten appreciably pricier than it was five years ago. Some of that is a function of unavailability of credit, people afraid to buy houses and get stuck with a home price that might, might drop. I suspect that that'll normalize as more and more people slowly return to the housing market, but all told, since there isn't a whole lot of inflation, tips really isn't a place you want to be. It's been dead money for a couple of years. Uh, mm-hmm. The stuff that so that's pricey. The I would say the same thing for Treasuries. Maybe we get a little bit of a bounce because Treasuries really have gotten shellacked recently. But as you pointed out, it's the end of a 30-year bull market in 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 bonds and Treasuries especially. That's not our favorite place to be. The the two suggestions that we really like the best. If you look at the corporate bond market, you could buy a lot of quality bond names that are, you could do it on a bespoke basis and, and buy individual bonds, or there's a handful of, of decent um, corporate bond ETFs. BlackRock puts one out, um, State Street puts one out, iShares puts, puts them out. There are a number, and Vanguard puts one out. There, all of these are fairly low cost and reasonable yield. Uh, I'm not suggesting people go too far down the, the risk curve and, and load up on high yield. If you want to have uh, a little bit of high yield with 
better rated investment grade corporates you can, but that should just be a small piece, not, not your focus. And the other area are, are the muni bonds that are out there. You know, Meredith Whitney did a fantastic job scaring the bejesus out of everybody. Yes. <laughs> With a few hundred billion defaults coming this year, she said three years ago. And other than Detroit, which unless you're living in a cave in Yemen, everybody knew it was going <laughs> uh, bankrupt eventually. It's not, not only has their major industry moved away over the past 30 years, but they were one of the most mismanaged, corrupt cities in the country. It was an inevitability that they were going out. Uh, it had been a handful, other than that, there had been a handful of states that were either poorly run or mismanaged or had a specific uh, problem. It, it but you're saying that that has infected, the, the Detroit, Stockton, all that has infected the other munis, which are now cheap, is what you're saying. That's right. You, so, you, so you have Meredith scaring people, you have Detroit scaring people, and you end up with the circumstance that uh, there is a, a reasonable set of prices for um, for muni bonds, and depending on the size of the portfolio, the the easiest, the best way to do it is to have a bond manager go out and hand select um, bonds that are a function of your timeline, how how far out you want to go. I think at this point it's pretty clear. We're going to see higher rates eventually. I, I can't forecast when that will happen. But anybody who wants to take a bet 10 years from now are rates higher and lower, I think the path of least resistance is higher uh, over that time, time frame. So typically we have people looking out six, seven years uh, on the duration. And if yields go higher as that ladder rolls off, as each year rolls off, you're actually replacing that with a higher uh, you're actually replacing that with a higher yielding. So you're, bond you're doing a ladder strategy, is That's what you're right. saying. That yeah. on an individual portfolio, on a bespoke where you're actually holding bonds, individual if, bonds, yeah, if, as opposed if, to funds. If it's a smaller portfolio that it doesn't make sense to do that with, um, the the least expensive way we found to do that is through. Um, now you can't really do it with ETFs um, because you end up losing the the tax advantage of of municipals. So really, the, the, the best way to do that is to find a, an inexpensive um, muni bond um, mutual fund. And again, uh, not to make this a commercial for Vanguard, uh, I know Schwab occasionally has some low-priced stuff, but for the most part, every time we look to find the least expensive mutual fund that does something, for whatever reason, it seems that Vanguard is... is uh, always there, if not the cheapest, then one of the cheapest. So that's a okay. good way to get exposure. Just recognize uh, at a certain point, yields have to go up. And if you're holding bonds short term, you're going to feel some pain when yields rise. Very good. We're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman at the Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Barry Ritholtz. He's the Chief Investment Officer at Ritholtz Wealth Management based in New York City. We'll be back after this. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. In sales, are you a lion or a vulture? Lions don't wait. They just go for it. 
Vultures hang around until the lions are finished and just pick up the scraps. How can you set yourself apart as a lion? Join the other aspiring sales lions and listen to Forget Patience, Let's Sell Something with host Ty Maynard. You'll learn the tips and strategies of top sales professionals. You'll gain more clients at a faster rate and at higher margins. If you're a sales professional, business owner, or executive, listen in every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Is your business model robust enough? In today's ever-changing business environment, people are working to transform themselves, their futures, and their business. Tune in to Business Reinvention with your host, Nancy Lynn. To stay ahead of the game in business, you have to constantly reinvent yourself and your organization. With Nancy's experience and that of her guest experts, you'll learn from stories of inspiration, innovation, and forward thinking. Listen for Business Reinvention, live every Monday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Business Channel. Whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Barry Ritholtz, the Chief Investment Officer at Ritholtz Wealth Management based in New York City. Welcome back to the show, Barry. Thank you. So let's talk about uh, the Federal Reserve situation. Now, we've had uh, so-called quantitative easing for uh, quite a few years now, uh, coming out of the the, uh, the economic crisis we had. Uh, It seems like it's going to continue for a while. Uh, is this a positive or negative development? It certainly seems to have helped the market. So what's wrong with quantitative easing forever? Well, first, it, it, there's a couple of things wrong. But before I launch into a Fed tirade, I, I just want to preface it with one little statement. And I always try and keep this in mind. My job is to manage risk and manage assets for clients. I don't work in a think tank. I don't work um, in Washington, D.C. as a policy wonk. So whatever I say about this subject, A, take, take with a grain of salt, and B, understand it's not my job to tell the Fed how to do their job. Uh, I liken what I do to I'm the captain of a vessel, and it's my job to understand the tides and the winds and where the storms are and, and where sea dragons live, not to tilt at windmills, and I find a lot of people in my business would much rather tell the Fed how to do their jobs than actually manage risk. So, okay. so with that preface out of the way, um, uh, you know what the Fed is doing is sort of a function, in my perspective, of the cards they were dealt when when we had. And I am literally talking my book, Bailout Nation, here. So I obviously have a point of view, and uh, I am nowhere near anywhere close to objective on this. But I think that when the decision was made to bail out the big banks, to bail out um, Citigroup and Bank of America and AIG and down the whole list, it created a situation 
thanks to the boom and bust in real estate and all the bad mortgages and subprime junk that was on everybody's books, that the Fed was kind of painted in, in a corner. And, and let me explain what I mean by that. I'm not, by the way, I'm not justifying, rationalizing what the Fed is doing. I'm just trying to explain it so I understand it myself. Okay. So, so once we, once the Treasury, once Hank Paulson and Ben Bernanke went to Congress and said, if we don't reliquify the system, the ATMs aren't going to work tomorrow. There's going to be chaos in the street. We may have to impose martial law. Uh, the, the, they added all this liquidity. So that was the first part. The second part, once they started bailing out the banks, once they started writing 20 and $30 billion checks, um, Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs became bank holding companies. Merrill Lynch, uh, shotgun wedding. Um, Lehman Pieces got bought by Barclays. You go down the whole list and the almost trillion dollars, the $768 billion Congress spent. Well, at that point, now the government is in, in, literally has an outcome in these banks not failing. And mm-hmm. so, so you have a situation that the normal process after a credit crisis, after a financial crisis based on excess credit, is an unwind. And that unwind typically means much lower prices. You know, a house that was going for 300000 in, in 1999 that spiked up to 600000 fell to about four fifty, and then all the extraordinary bailouts and low rates and everything else kind of stopped it at that four fifty level. And what should have happened is this should have gone to two hundred thousand, really dirt cheap. You know, think about the price of technology companies in two thousand, or the price of everything in in March of two thousand nine. Uh, I'm sorry, the technology companies in let's call it October o two or March o three. Uh, and so you bring in new buyers, you bring in uh, people, some people call it better hands. That so you're saying that the Fed, in effect, kind of uh, overrode the market's normal clearing mechanism. That's exactly right. You have it precisely right. So instead of having all the... All the there's, there's a reason why the household formation has plummeted and so many kids are living in their parents' basement. What should have happened is these home prices got dirt cheap. A bunch of people would go out and buy them. Now you have people in homes that they can afford... The people who couldn't afford them, well, I'm sorry about the foreclosure process, but you paid too much for the house, you can't afford it, time to move on. Uh, That process, as painful and wrenching as it is, does a tremendous amount of good on an economic basis. So since we arrested that process, since we stopped it, um, if you would have not rescued the banks, uh, what would have happened is what happened when Sweden had their crisis. And if you look at the Swedish response, and admittedly, Sweden and Iceland, much smaller than the United States. Iceland, uh, much smaller than just about any major town in, in the U.S. Uh, instead of trying to save the banks, they saved the banking system. And the way they did that was each of these banks was put into receivership. The government was the uh, debtor in possession, which is a fancy way of saying, hey, we'll fund them throughout the bankruptcy process. They clean these banks up. They wipe out the shareholders. They fire the senior management. They bring in a whole new crop of management. All the bad debt. And by the way, there's really no such thing as toxic debt. There's only toxic prices. Some toxic debt that someone paid 100 cents on the dollar for, hey, at 15 cents on the dollar, there's money to be made. And so you sell off all that stuff for pennies on the dollar. And again, good buyers come in. And then when you spin those banks out shortly thereafter, 
you have a clean bank with a clean balance sheet, no debt, and no toxic assets. It's kind of what they did with General Motors in crisis. They you went know, into bankruptcy and got rid of their pension funds and health care exactly funds. That's exactly right. So the, uh, this is going to sound insane, but the GM bankruptcy is what should have happened with Bank America, Citigroup, Merrill, and everybody else. It would have been much more painful. Maybe we would have been down to Dow 5,000 or 4,000. I have no idea. But today, we would be a much healthier economy. The Fed intervention would be far, far more limited, and things would be healing more organically. Instead, the, since we now have banks that continue to have all this junk on their balance sheet, the, uh, J.P. Morgan, $13 billion deal with $4 billion for uh, homeowners that they somehow um, did bad things to to, to help uh, bring that back to normal, uh, the Fed is compelled to keep rates at such an idiotic level because if they raise rates, if they normalize rates, if, if the Fed funds rate went to 6%, all those bailed-out banks would be bust again because all of the housing on their, all, all the mortgages on their, on their books, with a lot of variable um, mortgages still, people did 10-1 mortgages, 10 years variable, and no. then it rolls into... Those things would people would be defaulting left and right. And you say you need an even bigger bailout. If you did that, if you put the banks underwater, they'd need an even bigger bailout than in 2008, 2009. I don't think there's an appetite for a second bailout. I think the the example that you mentioned of Chrysler and General Motors, that perhaps more intelligent heads would prevail the second go around. uh, People would say, hey, let's do for Bank of America and Citigroup, Citibank, I don't know what to call them anymore. Um, what we what we did for Chrysler and end up with a healthier entity. If we would have done something along those lines, we'd be much better off. So on the one hand, I, I can't help but feel that the Fed wasn't painted into a corner and they have no choice. On the other hand, the, the good news is there's a taper coming next year, and it's coming not because the Fed is seeing inflation, but it's coming because it's seeing the economy slowly heal. And, and Do you think if Yellen comes in that there would be a taper? Some people think she's the queen of the doves and will never taper, taper long, long into the future. I, I'm not a gambling man, but gun to the head, I would tell you March 2014, is uh, uh, unless the economy gets appreciably worse, and I, I have no doubt that the shutdown shaved a little bit off GDP, not a whole lot, a little yeah. bit, unless we're on the verge of a recession, I, I think that she wants to help normalize rates as much as anybody does. Mm-hmm. So basically you're saying that this is going to continue, even if they taper, we're still having a massive amount of bond buying and quantitative easing for as far as the eye can see. Right? This is not going to be over within a year or something. So, so let me put this into context. They, they were talking about a 20 to $30 billion taper on a monthly basis when they start to taper. To remind everybody, that's about the size of the, the Bear Stearns bailout or how much money the Fed guaranteed J.P. Morgan to buy Bear Stearns. So what, what's being described as a taper is just one less Bear Stearns bailout. Now, granted, the money isn't going to a private company. It's actually just buying bonds. The Fed pretty much is in the catbird seat when it, become, when it comes to being the world's largest bond-based hedge fund. And they've been making a lot of money on their bond buying because they can, because they set rates. Perhaps there's a little bit of a uh, 
perhaps there's a little bit of a, a risk factor of how much sort of losses, paper losses, they'll take on the way out. But I, I think that you know reducing the bond buying um, in March is the best guess as to where and when the Fed um, is going to start. And by the way, that still means there's a ton of stimulus, there's a ton of Fed intervention. It's just a little smaller and a step towards moving away uh, moving away from the current system, which is extremely stimulative. Very good. We're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Barry Ritholtz. He's the Chief Investment Officer at Ritholtz Wealth Management uh, in New York City. And we'll be back after this. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. How can we Americans realize our dreams to earn a living? How can you pursue your dream and make money as an owner or an employee? Learn how at The American Business Person, the online weekly radio talk show hosted by Rich Killian. Today's business leaders share how to succeed and what fails. If you own a new or established business or ever hope to, you must tune in. Join us every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Central, and noon Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel or listen on demand to our archived shows. Are you looking for innovative ideas on how to achieve your financial dreams? Tune in to Empirical Investing Radio every Thursday afternoon at 2 Pacific, 5 Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Join certified financial planners Ken Smith and Ethan Broga to learn how you can obtain financial success. You'll be entertained while you discover techniques to alleviate your financial concerns. Empirical Investing Radio every Thursday at 2 Pacific, 5 Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Barry Ritholtz. He's the Chief Investment Officer at Ritholtz Wealth Management in New York City. Welcome back to the show, Barry. Thank you. So we've taken care of the, um, the the Fed and what they're going to be doing, and we know about valuations. Let's take a look at the kind of political economic situation a little bit. We just got through this incredibly traumatic near-death experience with defaulting of the national debt, which we didn't at the last moment. But we have the whole thing coming up in, in three months, the same thing. What, what is your view of if there is a possibility of having some kind of a grand bargain so that uh, taxes will be changed, entitlement channels, uh, spending will be changed, and we won't have to go through this uh, continual circus every three months or so. So, so first, the, the caveat, again, another, another prelude. Um, for the most part, Washington, D.C. doesn't really impact investors. I, I know everybody's shocked to hear that. The only time they have a major impact 
is when they do something really significant. So if you notice during the entire um, 16 or 17 days the government was shut, markets essentially moved upwards. There was a lot of, a lot of volatility, so that was a, an impact. Had they defaulted, that would have been a really big impact. But for the most part, we, we could pretty much safely ignore Washington, D.C., except when there's a major change in policy. So an enormous tax cut or an enormous tax increase. A major new policy like Obamacare is a perfect example. A, um, a war. I mean, there are a lot of really significant things they can do that has a big impact on equities. But most of the time, they're really background noise and, and should be ignored. So, so with that preface, preface um, uh, you know, we, we look at the uh, ob- obsessive focus on um, whatever the most recent news item is. Uh, we call that the recency effect. You know, uh, how, how long ago was it that Syria was, oh, my God, Syria is going to be a huge problem and the Straits of Hormuz, and oil's going to $150, and what are we going to do? And, you know, the, the mainstream press, of which I am in some small ways a part, uh, has an attention span, uh, you know, somewhere between a, a six-month-old and a gnat. And so uh, they bounce from topic to topic, subject to subject, with these breathless headlines and these, you know, ten things you must know before the world comes to an end type stuff, click here type stuff that there's a tendency to think that these things really, really matter, and 98% of the time they don't. So uh, with that said, uh, this is really a, a, a ludicrous way to, to run an economy, to run a government. Uh, on the one hand, Congress, you know, I always find it amusing when the same congressmen who voted for these authorizations in the first place are now complaining about the debt ceiling. Well, well wait. This didn't come out of left field. You guys voted for us. So pick. Do you want to spend the money or don't you want? You don't get to say, I support Social Security out of one side of your mouth to one group of voters, one on the other side of your mouth. We need to put a cap on Social Security. Uh, These guys are just very intellectually dishonest. And as someone who grew up a Northeastern Republican, Jacob Javits was my senator, I I look at the modern Republican Party and I don't recognize it. It's it's really just uh, completely. So is, so, so is there the possibility of a compromise with the political situation where it is now? I I don't think so. I I I mean, though, what we learned this go round is if there's really a danger of lasting damage, and arguably we actually did some lasting damage to the United States and created an impetus to replace the dollar as the sole reserve currency which is, as, as de Gaulle called it, an exorbitant privilege of the United States, um, which makes our borrowing cheaper and, and gives us um, advantages over other countries, uh, I mean us as consumers, um, I, I hope we're not careening from crisis to crisis. It's just too annoying to deal. As a citizen, I find it really annoying to have to watch this nonsense. So Mark if you think there is, is no compromise, then that's, you're saying we are going to go from crisis to crisis. Um, There's no well, grand we, compromise. Well, the How past, do we avoid doing that? The, the past five years, we, we have been going from crisis to crisis. And, and I think that right now there's a schism um, on the right, and you have the, the moderate Republicans, uh, of, of whom 
they're a vanishing breed, having uh, real difficulty with the um, Republicans that are on the far right of the spectrum. And so depending on how that internecine warfare, you know, normally it's partisanship between Democrats and Republicans fighting each other. This last one seemed to be a civil war within the Republican Party. So depending on how that is resolved, um, does does the speaker keep his his seat? I think he will, but I'm not a political expert. So, Barry, I'm going to make you king for the day, okay? okay? And you now have total power over all of these issues, and you're going to force a compromise. What would you? What would be Barry Ritholtz's grand bargain, as far as tax policy, getting entitlements under control, spending the sequester, all these things? You have now complete power. Twins. That would be my first order. Um, so, so uh, benevolent dictator. So, yes. Really simple. There, there are three things that have to be done to get the long-term finances of the United States in shape. The the first thing is um, so it's taxes and spending. Uh, on the spending side, the United States spends, depending on whose numbers you look at, somewhere between the equivalent of the next 19 or 20 countries' defense spending combined. So it, it's, it's time for the U.S. to stop being policemen to the world. We have to have a much more intelligent procru- procurement process. Look at, look at both the F-35 fighter and the Osprey F-22 um, uh, it, it's like a fixed-wing crashing machine, which the military doesn't want, but because it creates jobs in congressmen's districts, they do that. That nonsense has to stop. The military budget really has to get slashed in half, and we're still the next five countries combined, so that's number one. On, okay. the, so- on the Social Security side, there's, there's two things that, that are very likely to happen. First, means testing. That means people like me who can afford health care, Aren't gonna and, and retirement aren't gonna get social security despite having paid into it for forty or fifty years of our career. That that's the first thing that'll happen. Eventually, the age of retirement is is likely to go up. Remember when social security first passed, the average lifespan was sixty five. Now, if you make it to seventy two, you have a real good shot to make it into your late eighties. Um, so uh, that those numbers have changed. Three, the cap on contributing to Social Security. Uh, I'm trying to remember if it was 113 or 118. That's right, 113, so, yeah. So, so 113, that's going to have to go up. I suspect that it will go up to 250 and then 500 over the next 10 years. When that cap goes up, it means Social Security is solvent for 75 years. Social Security and defense, believe it or not, are the easy ones. Medicare Medicaid are the hard ones because the United States pays double what a comparable country around the world, whether you look at Switzerland, whether you look at um, Germany, whether you look at England, whether you look at Japan, any U.S.-like Western industrial nation, their costs are half. And there are a couple of reasons for that. They typically have a a single-payer system, which we don't, um, which means that there's negotiating with with providers, with insurers, with um, pharmaceutical companies, with hospitals, so you're getting a much more aggressive rate. And second, you don't have this problem where 30, 40 million people are using the emergency room uh, as their form of primary care, which is the least efficient, most expensive way to 
Um, okay, we, ha- we have about a minute to go. Let's just take care of the tax system since you're the benevolent dictator at the moment. All right, so the tax system is, is pretty clear. As benevolent dictator, you eliminate almost every loophole and exemption there is. You set up four basic tax rates um, with a minimum tax for people who are make, making over $5 million or, or one pick a number, $1 million a year. So it's somewhat progressive uh, with some deductions, but not crazy deductions. You don't want a flat tax um, because it really is regressive. But on the other hand, the United States, and again, people like me are paying the lowest taxes we've paid. Well, we were paying lower taxes five years ago, but other than that, we're paying the lowest taxes we have in 30, 40 years. You look at the U.S. versus the rest of the Western world, our tax base. By the way, if you were to do this all at once, you would tip us into a recession. So something like this has to be gradually implemented over a decade. Very good. All right, well, you've been a fantastic, benevolent dictator. We'll, we'll follow your dictates exactly here, Barry. So thank you so much. You've been a wonderful guest My on The pleasure. Money Answer Show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. My guest has been Barry Ritholtz, the Chief Investment Officer at Ritholtz Wealth Management. Your website, again, is RitholtzWealth.com. Is that correct? RitholtzWealth.com is the site, and the blog is just Ritholtz.com. Terrific. Well, thanks so much for being on the show, and we'll be back with another edition of The Money Answer Show next week. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and The Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.